You've probably figured out by now that I am not Josh Strahan. But welcome to his class entitled A Casual Liturgy. Josh this morning is in London performing a wedding for one of his students, so I'm really jealous. Um, unfortunately, that means you're stuck with me as a substitute teacher, and we all know what that means. I certainly do not have Josh's homiletic gifts or his theological expertise, but at least we can follow his lesson plan for today, which he left behind. And uh, there's some handouts scattered around. If they're extras, um, just wave them and you can pick them up. In case you're new to this class, you should know that it's a bit of an experiment. A casual liturgy is designed to be more like a communal exercise than a traditional classroom lecture. It's not meant to be a second worship service. We're trying to avoid that, too, because a lot of you just went to first service or you're getting ready to go to second service, and those are important. But we hope that instead this will be a time of, um, a time of focused devotion and meditation directed by the liturgy, a ritual of prayers and readings for this season. As a way of focusing our attention this morning, let's remember where we are on the liturgical calendar. This past week, some of you may have participated in our Ash Wednesday service. Did anybody besides me go? Several of you. Which for many Christians and many different traditions marks the beginning of the season of Lent. And that term Lent is a traditional term for the 40 days that lead up to Easter. If Easter Sunday recalls the greatest and most glorious moment in human history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his victory over the powers of sin and death, then Lent reminds us why he submitted himself to crucifixion. It's our fault. Though without sin himself, he suffered and died on our behalf for our sins. The ashes of Ash Wednesday remind us that we are both mortal and prone to sin, that from dust were we made, and to dust we shall return, and that death is the price of sin. And the Lenten tradition of fasting, in whatever form it takes, is an emblem of that hard truth. To begin today, we want to read from Psalm 32. This first reading, Psalm 32, um, like all psalms, is a poem, which is sort of what I specialize in as a teacher. It's a poem, and like all poems, it draws our attention to one piece of lived human experience. In this case, it draws our attention to what sin feels like to people of faith. What does sin feel like? You'll notice when I read it that this psalm is, is highly structured. The writer divides the poem into four parts by using an ancient Hebrew musical term, selah. It was apparently a kind of musical notation, think like those funny little curvy marks that, I forget the names, that tell you how long to pause between notes, rests, or like a sharp or a flat. We don't know exactly what that term meant beyond being a notation, but we do recognize how it works in a poem. 
It slows us down as listeners or readers. And it gives us pause to ponder. When we do slow down in this psalm, which I'll read in a minute, we'll notice something surprising. That this poem about what sin feels like is framed not by words of despair, which is what most of us would expect from our experience of sin, but with words of joy. Then there's a pause, the first selah. The second part then analyzes the experience of being sinful for us by giving us essentially a self-portrait. The speaker talks about how he tried vainly to hide his sin. He's forced then to admit his failure, and he confesses his transgressions to the Lord. And then, for another surprise, he finds that God forgives and does not punish. That's the second moment where we find Selah, the rest. The third part of this poem is about what sin feels like, but again it surprises us, because it describes God not as the punisher of sin, not the one who punishes those who confess, but rather as their rescuer and their deliverer. And then you'll hear another pause, Selah. The fourth and final part of the poem encourages confession by comparing those who hesitate to disobedient beasts of burden who stubbornly wait for punishment. And then it ends again with a joyful reminder of God's steadfast love for those who trust in Him. As I read it now, let's remember that this is our self-portrait too. We know what sin feels like. This reminds us to look at it from God's perspective. I'll pause after I read it for a moment, and then we'll do our prayer of confession together. Here is Psalm 32. Happy are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy are those to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. While I kept silence, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not hide my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let all who are faithful offer prayer to you. At a time of distress, the rush of mighty waters shall not reach them. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with glad cries of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding, whose temper must be curbed with bit and bridle, or else it will not stay near you. 
Many are the torments of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds those who trust in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. After that psalm about confession, let's read this prayer together as our confession. You'll pray with me. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. The next reading from the lectionary... uh, collection for the day is from Genesis. Matt and I were talking about this on the way to church today that sometimes when you see the collection of texts for the day, you wonder why they chose what they did to pull out from the Old Testament and the New Testament and the Psalm and the Gospel. And I was telling Matt that I like to think of it as uh, those of you that have sewn you know that if you want to keep your, your fabric together when you're doing the final seam, you do a very loose basting thread. So you just do very large stitches. And it often just holds the material together enough to get the stitch in. But sometimes also you can pull on that basting thread and it gathers in the material. So, so as we're listening to the different scriptures today, in your own mind, let the Holy Spirit show you that basting thread. What are the things that are running through each one of those passages? Sometimes it's very clear. Other times you might be looking for it a little harder. But So maybe think of that as we head into some of these other passages. So beginning in Genesis 2. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. And moving into chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree 
that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. We're going to sing this song. Um, we're going to sing four verses. So the first two verses are in this one. And if we will, let's sing the first verse in unison, and the second verse we can go into parts, then the third verse in unison, and the fourth verse in parts. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, Keeping with the, uh, the thought of the thread that moves through, um, this passage is a little tortured. It moves back and forth several times. But the narrative is from, from Adam's sin came a fall, and it affected everyone. But that when Jesus came and gave his life, it was more than enough. To overcome. <clears throat> Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, and so death spread to all because all have sinned, sin was indeed in the world before the law, but sin is not reckoned when there is no law. Yet death exercised dominion from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam who is a type of the one that was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For the, if the many died through one man's trespass, much more surely have the grace of God and the free gift in the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. And the free gift is not like the effect of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses 
brings justification. If, because of the one man's trespass, death exercised dominion through that one, much more surely will those who receive the abundance of the grace and the free gift of righteousness exercise dominion in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to the condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. For just as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. From Matthew 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. The tempter came to Jesus and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took Jesus to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered the devil, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, Satan said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. Before we sing again, let's ponder what we've heard. In the Genesis passage, that reading brings us back to the beginning, specifically to the beginning of our human history of sin. Two perfect humans created by a perfect God, placed in a perfect garden, surrounded by a perfect abundance of perfect food from which to choose, given one perfectly clear command to obey, meet one temptation, and fall. For the Hebrew people, and for us also as Christians, this story has always been fundamental because it explains why life is hard and then we die. To paraphrase John Milton, Adam's trespass brought death into the world and all our woe. This is Mary's basting stitch. If you remember Psalm 32, the passage I read first, this story also reminds us that that's how sin works. 
just like Adam and Eve, we disobey. We also try to hide or deny our moment of disobedience until we eventually find out that we have been found out and we realize that we are defenseless. But failure and shame isn't the end of the story. The history of sin for people of faith is not a dramatic tragedy. Even here in Eden, God promises to make all things well. Speaking to the serpent later, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. The end of the history of sin for us is not Adam, and not us, but Jesus. And then that kind of complicated passage from Romans. When Paul is writing to the Roman church, he's exhorting his audience to recognize the real arc of the human story by presenting, or actually by contrasting the actions of two key human characters. One of whom is created by God, the other of whom is God. Adam, he says, committed one trespass. His one trespass brought judgment and condemnation for everyone else. The advent of Moses' law only made sin more apparent and death more ominous. But by contrast, the free gift of Christ, and that's Paul's term, the free gift, his obedient self-sacrifice on the cross, was not like the trespass, Paul says. Remember that Genesis story about being in a perfect place. And this story, in a chaotic world ruined by sin and dominated by the power of death, the one innocent man, the Son of God Himself, with hosts of angels He could command, chose instead to humbly and obediently and lovingly submit Himself to the power of death. That was his free gift to a sinful world. In contrast to Adam's one trespass, which resulted in condemnation and death for all, Jesus' one free gift, the gift of his perfectly obedient life, resulted in justification and eternal life for all. Praise be to God. And then today, the passage that for me really is the climax is the gospel reading from Matthew that Shannon read for us. When we read that passage about the temptation of Christ alongside the other three passages for the day, the story from the gospel of Matthew strikes me in this way. As I mentioned at the beginning of class, the season of Lent lasts 40 days in the Western Church's calendar. That 40-day season is understood to remind us of the temptation of Christ. That temptation occurred after 40 days of fasting in the wilderness and involves his own encounter with temptation, with the tempter. That's why Christians fast during Lent. It's an imitation of Christ. The world is our wilderness, full of temptation. Our fasting reminds us of his fasting, of our own disobedience, and of his perfect obedience. 
When I consider this passage alongside the one from Genesis, I notice something. The Genesis passage is set in a perfect garden with a perfect couple, surrounded by plenty of perfect food to eat, that single perfect command, and a tempter enters that scene. By contrast, the gospel story, not set in a perfect garden but in a wilderness, one perfect man alone, with nothing to eat, with a whole Torah full of commands to obey. And yet something similar happens. The tempter appears. In the Genesis story, the couple failed. It's the story of our first disobedience. But the gospel story is the story of a steadfast obedience in resisting temptation. Not once, not twice, but three times. Jesus chooses to obey in spite of everything. So this morning I recognize those two passages, Genesis and the temptation of the desert, as portraits. One is our human portrait of what the experience of sin is like. It's an all too human picture of our shameful failure, of our inexcusable disobedience. That portrait in Genesis is also my portrait as a person. I know myself as sinful. This is the picture that Lent reminds us of. We are creatures whom sin has doomed to death. But the other passage from Matthew is also a portrait, a picture that reminds us not of Lent, like it's supposed to, but also of Easter, of the perfectly obedient man, the Son of God, who died for our sins and was raised again to life by the power of God, who appeared to his disciples, who ascended into heaven, and now sits at the right hand of God. As Paul reminds us that our obedience to the gospel makes that second portrait ours too. That because of Christ's free gift, his sacrifice, and our confession of faith in that gift, God chooses to see Him in us and not our sinful self. When we acknowledge and confess, as that psalm reminds us we ought to do, God forgives because Christ has justified. That's the God we trust, and that's why we trust. That's why Easter follows Lent. Let's sing again. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, thou and always. Thou and thou only first is in my heart. I king of heaven, my treasure.
Christ. Join me uh, with me as we confess our faith together. I, I believe, believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, He rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let us now pray as he taught us the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Now this time, a little less formal, we have a few minutes to talk about. Um, I like Mary's image of the basting stitch. Um, how did things fall together for you? You heard what I thought, how they fell together for me. Did you notice anything different or unusual when you ponder these scriptures together this time? I have one that I probably shouldn't say, but, but it came to me in, in the psalm. That strange image comparing us and our disobedience to mules. Right? It, it dawned on me that if we were writing that today, that the psalmist would be, is simply saying, forgive me for saying this, don't be a jackass. <laughs> don't wait for God to punish you. Don't try to hide your sin. Didn't work out for Adam and Eve. It won't work out for you. We all know what it feels like to try to hide and to carry that burden. Draw near to God. Trust in God. Confess. And He will forgive. That's what strikes, struck me, sort of reading that psalm again. Because it doesn't really tell us what we ordinarily think about sin. It reminds us that it hurts and it feels terrible. But it reminds us of what happens when we confess and draw near to God. That He goes... And he can make it go away. I'll do, I've, I've had, a, had a bunch of thoughts, but one, one of the, the probably the top two. I love Mike's reading of uh, in Matthew where he, he talked. He used the word. Is it was it Matthew free gift? No, it was Paul. It's Paul. It's yeah. Romans. Yeah. Paul free gift. And I I remember uh, early Greek class something that stuck out to me is that word is Dorian free gift. And anytime you see the word gift, it's Dorian, and you should translate it free gift. And I'm like, well, Dr. Ford, what's a free gift? And he, he said, a free, you know, if somebody comes over to your house and they bring you a Christmas present, he said that his mother was the kind of person to go, oh, well, let me go in here and get your present. And she always had a closet full of presents. And she would pull out something and get, because it was so uncomfortable for her to accept the gift. That's a free grace is a free gift. Um, so that stuck out. And that's the NRSV, which 
Lee is trying in theology is trying to get us to well, you know, as a he's trying to get us as a congregation to read one version of the Bible so that it will become more liturgical in our minds every time we hear it. If you keep on presenting all these different versions, you don't ever get that repetition because most of us don't study like we should. The second one was in uh, Matthew where she did the temptations. This morning I read in Luke, I read the temptations in Luke. And it's interesting that at the very end it said, and the devil left him for a more appropriate time. And the next appropriate time, the devil always attacks us when we are at our weakest point. And the next appropriate time for Jesus was at the crucifixion when he's in Gethsemane and he prays, let this cup pass. That's the temptation. I just think that's true. Yeah. Funny how those, we put those together. Exactly. I like what you said about the free gift. You know, we expect a catch. Right. There's, there's not a catch. We, and we expect, if not a catch, an exchange. Right. Oh, if you're going to give me the free gift, then I've got to I've got to go to church this many times. And that's Paul's point is, no, that's not the way it works. It's, it's, it's a free gift. It's there. Right. Our response doesn't earn it back. By going to church more often, we don't sort of work off the interest. It's a free gift. Um, and what we do to obtain a gift is just admit what we know is true. We, we sin. We fall short. And put our trust in God. It's hard. Our, our model is Christ. and That's hard. But that's the other, sort of those, those are the bookends of human history. There's Adam who for no good reason disobeyed except that he was human. And Christ who had every reason to find a different way and even asks if this cup can pass, let it pass. But he obeys anyway. But that was his temptation. That's his temptation. Comparing last week to this week, I found it interesting that he had to go through this alone, but yet he also knew the power of having people with him. And then we look at the final temptation of where he tried to bring people with him and they just, they, they couldn't cut the mustard. I mean, they, they, they fell asleep. But yeah, he was still faithful to the, um, to, to, at the end of the day, he was still faithful to be alone by himself in the temptation. And I think that so many times in our life, we are afraid to ask people to help us walk with us through temptation. But we also sometimes have to acknowledge that at the end of the day, God's going to be the one who can be the most faithful in your temptation and be there for you to get you out of the temptation. And that reminds me that Christ also says, I will not leave you alone. I will not leave you comfortless. I will send my spirit. Mm -hmm. yeah, he comes back. Yeah, I'm just struck by, um, and it's something that I was talking to a friend about this week too, is the, the tempter also comes at times of high points in our life. And... My friend called it an ambush. Ah, that's we have good. to be careful of the ambush of our mountaintop experiences. Like I had a really special, special night on Friday night for my walk, and yesterday morning was just chaotic of dumb spirit, like dumb materialistic dumb stuff. But my friend also had this gift of an opportunity of being a part of a conference, and she was. She was like freaking out because she knew it was going to be talking for 50 women, and she was just, and it was really good. It was really, it went really well, and she was ambushed. So I just, I guess, 
you know, when you look at Jesus in Matthew 4, he was ambushed because he had just gotten baptized. And so I just ask that we pay attention, that it's just a scheme, and that it's not the end, and it's it's the spiritual warfare that we can read about in Ephesians 6, and we that's great. Yep. Adam and Eve ambush. Right. Christ ambush. What can we expect? Ambush. That's great. Okay. Well, we have to quit. That's a good note to close on. Let me end by, by praying this collect over us, and we'll finish. Almighty God, whose blessed Son was led by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan, come quickly to help us who are assaulted by many temptations. And as you know the weakness of each of us, let each one find you mighty to save. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks for being here.